Welcome, bienvenidos, and thanks for joining us on the Talking 21 podcast, the official podcast dedicated to the extraordinary life and legacy of the legendary 21, Roberto Clemente Walker. Today we have for the very first time on our podcast, not one, but two guests. Both know the game of baseball quite well because one actually played six seasons from 1972 to 1977, while the other was drafted by the Pittsburgh Pirates in 2004 and is still playing and currently a free agent. Not only were they both first round draft picks, they are actually father and son. Welcome to the podcast, Tom and Neil Walker. But there are also a number of interesting similarities that for 48 years, their lives have been intertwined with the late Puerto Rican baseball player named Roberto Clemente Walker. Firstly, there's the name Walker, which was also Clemente's mom's maiden name. And although family and friends still call our guest Tom, his first name is actually Robert. Like Clemente, who was also claimed in the Rule 5 draft, the Pirates scrap Clemente, who was originally signed by the Dodgers in 1954, while the Expos claimed Tom in 1971. Or should I say his full name for our podcast listeners, Roberto Thomas Walker. The stories you're about to hear are truly unbelievable. On the other hand, his son Neil will also share some fascinating moments that occurred throughout his phenomenal baseball career that he will be the first to tell our listeners was no coincidence, simply the truth and cannot be explained. And finally, I'm super excited because as I was preparing for this podcast, I immediately thought about that heartfelt baseball movie scene in Field of Dreams. During his teenage years, I can only imagine when a young Neil Walker picked up a baseball and way before he was drafted, there was a special moment in a backyard or on a ball field where he would say to his beloved father, Tom, hey, dad, you want to have a catch? Well, on behalf of the Talking 21 crew, a sincere welcome to the Walker family, and thanks for joining us for episode nine. We're really, truly excited to have these two guests here, a father and son on our pod, to share their baseball experiences with our listeners. So, Tom, the question goes to you first. You may... You may want you may be one of the few families with someone who played baseball or a particular sport in high school, college. Your daughter Carrie obviously had a stellar career, basketball career at Wagner College. Uh, Matthew, your son, was drafted by the Tigers and played a few years in the minors. Sean, your other son, played baseball at uh, George Mason. Your own time in the Puerto Rican Winter Leagues, certainly you and Neil in the major leagues. And even to this day, which I found quite fascinating when uh, I was doing my own research, is that your son-in-law, Donnie Thomas Kelly, is the bench coach currently with the Pittsburgh Pirates. So this is an unbelievable, unbelievable family tree for the Walker family. So my question to you is, do you credit your own parents for introducing the game of baseball? Who I credit and what I credit and how I credit uh... I was born and raised in Tampa, Florida, which you could play baseball all, all year round. And uh, a lot of kids did. Uh, fortunately for me, I was surrounded by some uh, very competitive young men, my age kind of guys. Uh, one was named Steve Garvey. And uh, he and I went to junior high together and then high school together and then we went down the road, but it was, it became very competitive. Of course, I wasn't a hitter, never claimed to be, let's get that squared away. Um, but Steve never claimed to be a pitcher. So we, uh, we were very, it was a very competitive situation for me just growing up in Tampa, where it was a hotbed of, of baseball players and a lot of baseball players that had retired down there. So I honestly tried to, um, soak in as much baseball, so to speak, as I could, and uh, met a lot of, a lot of great guys along the way. And, uh, you know, we were talking the other day, Danny, about uh, 
going to uh, what did did you ever go to any uh, like spring training games? Well, yeah, I I did. Uh, went to many spring training games when uh, you know, the Cincinnati Reds were in Tampa. Uh, their whole setup was out there off of Dale Mabry Boulevard, which everybody knows where that's at. And then it was quite ironic that uh, I got the first time I ever walked on a major league slash minor league field. Uh, it was uh, Al Lopez Field. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, the, uh, it, was, it was a great experience for me just to go and watch these guys play. And I got the bug real early. I mean, I, I knew this is what I loved to watch, loved to see, loved to touch, and uh, hopefully someday play. And it kind of worked out. Oh. Well, you know, you know, it's interesting you mentioned about that bug because we have someone else here that got that similar bug in uh, your son, Neil Walker. So, Neil, uh, you heard your dad. Seeing how he played professionally, was it pretty obvious that you were going to give baseball a try? Did you feel optimistic, Neil, that you might be drafted? And listen, of all teams that would draft you, happened to be the Pittsburgh Pirates. So was it dad kind of set the uh, the tone, so to speak, Neil, with the interest in baseball? Well, let me paint a picture for you. I'm the youngest of four, and I have a, an older sister that's four years older than me and, older and two older brothers that are six and eight years older than me. So at a very early age, I was, uh, I was given what's called the sink or swim mentality. So um, I knew regardless of what was being played in the front yard, uh, in the driveway basketball court, uh, in the basement, uh, I was going to have to either – try to play with the big boys or I was going to have to uh, go cry and go upstairs and complain to mom and dad that they were playing rough. And I found at an early age that I was going to do everything I could to play with the big boys. And that was a very valuable lesson for me uh, at a young age, because um, we never got, none of us ever got to see our dad play. Um, you know, they had children fairly late in, 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 in their life. Um, and like I said, my oldest, oldest brother's eight years older than I am. So um, it was, it was one of those things where we obviously heard every story in the book from the Clemente stories to, uh, my uncle and, and, and my father playing together, my, my mom's brother, obviously. And that's kind of how they met, um, to stories about some of the best players from the 60s, 70s and 80s that I have no idea about mainly because I was born in 85. So I just know these as, uh, you know, as, as firsthand, uh, not non-firsthand basis. So, um, but I did know that when I got to about, when I got to about high school and I got to about ninth or 10th grade and, and I decided that, um, you know, it was kind of the same way as what my dad was saying. Every, I love to go down to three river stadium and watch Andy Van Slyke play and Barry Bonds and Bobby Bonilla. Those, those are my guys. I, I wanted to, I loved going to see those guys play. We probably caught five, six, seven games this summer in, in Pittsburgh going to see that. And I, would go with my brothers. I would go with my friends. I would go with my dad, my mom, all of them. We didn't care where we sat. We just wanted to be around the game of baseball. And uh, fortunately having somebody like my dad and my uncle and uh, that had the knowledge to, to know what it takes to get to the next level, but also an eye for talent. I, I figured by, by the time I was about a junior and I was bouncing around and doing some uh, local showcases and playing on some better AAU teams in the Western Pennsylvania area, I said, hey, I think I got a pretty good chance of playing at the next level. And that's when I started to look at some smaller schools. Both of my brothers went to, went to junior college and then went on to George Washington and George Mason, uh, both respectively. Um, so I, I, I learned the value of, you know, just number one, getting a, trying to find a place that, that, that I can get a good education if baseball didn't necessarily work. But number two, doing all that I can to maximize my potential as a baseball player. And so... I, I was, was given an incredible, valuable lesson before I was even 17 years of age. And fast forward to, to going into my senior year of high school, I was lucky enough to, to play in uh, a Team USA showcase in Joplin, Missouri. And it, me as a kid from the Northeast, especially in the early 2000s, I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, I, had, I really didn't think I was going to make the team, but I was excited about getting more exposure because everywhere I'd gone before that was – North Carolina and Virginia and, and New York and Ohio and some of these regional places. But, you know, you knew the hotbeds were Florida, Texas, California, all these places. So I went and uh, I was lucky enough to make the team. 
and go on and play in the Pan Am games in Curaçao um, in the Netherlands Antilles. And, and we finished in second place. And that's when in my brain, I kind of said, you know what, I need to, I need to put all my focus into this. And so really my last year and a half uh, of, of high school, my junior year and going into my senior year, I had played football, I played basketball, I played baseball all, all the way up to that point. I considered myself an athlete. Um, I said, you know what, this is what I want to do. So in my senior year, uh, I, I put, you know, all my focus and effort into making myself the best baseball player I could be. And come um, April, when this when the season baseball season rolled around, I started to have more and more people come into games. And I was lucky enough to, to be talked about getting drafted in the first, second or third round. And all of a sudden, toward the end of the season and late, uh, late May going into June, they were saying into the draft time, they said, hey, you know, you got a chance of being a first rounder. And I start, we, my agent started to talk to some teams and look at this. And they said, yeah, your number looks like it might be between 10 and 15. And what do you know, number 11 that year happened to be the Pittsburgh Pirates. And so they, got a, they, got, they had it easy for, for themselves seeing uh, me in, in, right in their backyard, 20 miles north of Pittsburgh. And uh, it just so happened come draft day, I had a pretty good idea that it was either going to be Pitts, it was either going to be Baltimore, Pittsburgh, or St. Louis, and Pittsburgh was right sandwiched in, in between all three of those teams. And uh, wouldn't you know it, uh, number eleven comes around, and we're sitting around a, a computer, and and they pick me. So uh, it was it was you know to this day probably the coolest moment of of my life, and especially being able to celebrate it with family and friends and all that stuff. And you know here we are, almost twenty years later into my professional career, and and I'm still hanging on. So. Um, I, I couldn't be more more blessed and more uh, appreciative of of my journey, but you know, obviously, we're going to get a little bit more into into some of the uh, antiquities between the Pittsburgh Pirates and Roberto Clemente and myself and my dad uh, as this interview goes along. You know, Neil, uh, just listening to you right now, and the first thing that came to me when you mentioned uh, being drafted in the first round, what are the chances that so many years prior? Your own father was drafted uh, in 1968 and drafted by the Baltimore Orioles, a team that you just mentioned. So I'd love to hear from your dad, you know, Tom, the importance for every ball player, certainly from my own experience as a sports writer, is getting an opportunity to see that player in the minor leagues. So please, Tom, if you can, can you share some stories about playing in the minor leagues, but most importantly, your minor league manager, Cal Ripken Sr. Yeah, Cal was a major influence in my uh, development, uh, not only as a, a baseball player, but as a man uh, growing from a teenager, not, not one of the, the greatest pitched game in the minor leagues. Uh, in 1971 uh, through a 15 inning no hitter that actually changed the course of time for me um, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And that uh, vaulted me to the next level from minor leagues to the major leagues. Uh, it was, that was one of those things I, I'll never forget. I, I know I can't remember all the events. It's been quite a few years ago, but uh, I knew that the minor league system <laughs> had a uh, tremendous influence on my life. And then having leadership like Joe Altabelli, senior, you know, and then Cal Ripken, senior. And, you know, I can still see Billy. I can still see Cal Jr., you know, climbing fences at uh, Clearwater, Florida when his dad was trying to manage a game in the minor leagues. And it was just a hoot. <laughs> to watch how this, uh, that whole thing went on because I could really relate to it and my own, my own guys. I mean, uh, one thing Neil mentioned that, uh, you know, he got out there and played with his brothers and his sister. She could hold her own too, by the way. Um, but one thing that I have to give them respect as well because they never told Neil, you, you, you don't belong on the field with us. And, uh, in fact, I remember a game where I was managing our second son, Sean. He had a baseball game. He was playing AAU baseball, and we were going up to a place called Catanning. Well, three of the players had a flat tire, so we, we just barely had 
we had eight guys and Neil had ridden up there with me because he always wanted to take batting practice. He always wanted to throw, he wanted to do this, he wanted to do that. And if I didn't do it, uh, you know, I might as well not leave the ballpark. I had my eyes on get the bucket of balls out and let them do it and let them run the bases and everything else. So as it turned out, these guys never showed up. So I went over to the other manager. I said, hey, buddy, uh, you mind if I let my son, I've got another son here, you know, you mind if I let him play right field? All right. He says, are you sure? He's all right. So Neil, I think you're eight years old or nine years old or something. I don't know. But he trotted out there to right field. And the next thing I know, that the very first ball, there's a gown for a second ball. There's a gown first. The ball's hit out to Neil. Anyway, the guy says, oh, there's a little, little guy out there. I'm going to take a base on him. Well, what happened was he thought he was going to take a base. But anyway, Neil came up and threw a rocket to third base, and the guy was out. And, uh, so wait, so wait, so wait a minute. Here it is, Neil Walker, your son, your youngest son, is only eight years old, yeah. runs out to right field. I think yeah. someone we know very well played right field, and you yeah. just said right now, Neil threw a rocket. I think we know someone who threw a lot of rockets throughout their 18 years in the major league. So um, Neil, I'm just, I guess now I want to flip it to you. Why Neil? Why second base? Why catcher? Why didn't you stay in right field? <laughs> well, I was never considered a, a fleet-footed athlete in, in any of uh, the respective sports that I played. So I was uh, relegated mostly to the infield. And uh, really, I started catching in, in ninth grade because uh, a kid that ended up getting drafted by the White Sox and played at East, East Carolina University that was a good friend of mine was a better shortstop than me. And so he... They said, can anybody catch? And I said, well, I guess I'm not going to play shortstop. Uh, you know, I can either play some outfield, but I'm not that fast. Or I could play some third base or first base, but those are kind of boring. I'm going to, why don't I try some uh, catcher? And fast forward after four, year, four years of playing catcher, uh, it turned out to be a pretty good, good, good idea because I was drafted as a, as a switch hitting catcher, which anybody that has an idea about baseball knows that's somewhat of the holy grail if you can defensively catch and and hit a little bit for both sides of the plate a lot of teams want you and so that was kind of the the card we played but yeah out, outfield uh outfield just never really never really spoke to me but if i was a little bit if i was a little bit faster i might have might have stuck out there in one of the corners but it just didn't happen the funny part of that as the story worked out uh the manager <laughs> i don't know where i had neil plugged into the lineup there but uh I said, you mind if I let him hit? <laughs> the manager said, oh, no, no, no. I don't want that liability. So uh, Neil was ticked off that he didn't get the hit off the guy, but whatever. He got a lot of swings then, so. <laughs> you, you know, uh, Neil, your dad shared some amazing stories and someone who was a mentor uh, during a, his period in the minor leagues. But Neil, certainly I love to hear, and for our Talking 21 listeners, they know Neil Walker, the major league baseball player, but how instrumental was that period that uh, the importance of the minor leagues for Neil Walker? And were there any players, coach or manager that also similar to your dad with Cal Ripken Sr., someone to this day you'll never forget? Yeah, there. you know what? There, there's two guys that, that come to my mind and, and both of them uh, I, I had in the very early going of my professional career because uh, and I think that they were so influential because, uh, you know, I had no idea what I was getting into. And, and, you know, initially I had my heart set on going to college and kind of easing my way and hoping that I got an opportunity to play at the professional level. And, you know, things kind of expedited real quickly. And all of a sudden uh, I'm drafted and I sign and I'm getting on a plane to go to Florida to play in the Gulf Coast League for, for Bradenton uh, in the rookie level team. And I don't even know how to do my own laundry. So, <laughs> you know, that is, so things happen, things happen very quickly. And, and I was fortunate to have, uh, you know, some great people around me, but two guys that come to my mind that, that I, I, I really enjoyed their, uh, their coaching style, but also their, their philosophies on life and so on and so forth. And one is a, a gentleman named Woody Heike, who, who I had as a manager in, in Bradenton. And the other was Tom Prince, who uh, this past year was a AAA manager or, or uh, b 
before the season started. He was supposed to be the AAA manager for the Detroit Tigers and was in the Pirates organization for a long, long time. Tom taught me a ton about catching. Um, and uh, Woody Heike taught me a lot about discipline and uh, doing playing the game the right way. And he was a very old school manager. He probably was in his 70s when he was uh, my manager as an 18-year-old in 2004 in the Gulf Coast League. So um, very, very lucky to have people like that. And, and you run into so many people like that over the course of your career and and you gravitate toward the, the good ones and everybody same, seems to have the same story about the same guys because they're so good uh, from an individual standpoint but I know that those two guys uh, helped me help kickstart my career because like I said I had no idea what I was getting into with baseball and luckily I had a brother that was involved with, with professional baseball at the time and my dad and my uncle had gone through the, the, the ranks and my sister at the time was dating a a gentleman who you mentioned before, Don Kelly, who was playing in the minor leagues for the Tigers as well. So I had a lot of people in my corner, but to actually go through it on a day-to-day -day basis with, with people was different than bouncing uh, things off of somebody that you're maybe just talking to on a, you know, three, four times a week or whatever it may be. So uh, very, very lucky to have people like Tom Prince and Woody Heike uh, in, in, in the Pirates organization when I was there early in my career. So Neil, here it is. Um, and I definitely want to, hear your dad's thoughts, but uh, first, uh, the question is, starting the 2021 season, the minor league baseball system has been totally revamped and restructured. MLB has offered select teams, and I just found this out, they're actually called PDLs, Player Development License, and many have criticized Major League Baseball literally, literally decimating that level, along with the sudden departure of communities who literally have lost a minor league team along with individuals who worked, possibly are retired for a number of years who worked at these ballparks. So um, right now it looks like each major league team has four minor league teams. Um, when you heard about this, uh, Neil, what were your immediate thoughts? What came to mind? Yeah, you, you feel, you felt really sad. I felt really sad for these, these cities, these small cities and, I, I played most of my minor league career on the East Coast and in the South for the most part. Like I mentioned, Bradenton. I went from Bradenton, Williamsport, Pennsylvania, which is a small town, obviously. And then the following year, went to Hickory, North Carolina, then Lynchburg, Virginia, all these small towns. But uh, the, 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 the common thread between all of them, and whether it's the uh, Carolina League or the, the Eastern League or uh, the South Atlantic League, these are so integral and so important to the or these these teams are so integral to these communities and you felt really really bad and the you're talking about basically cutting organizations minor league teams in half which basically means you're cutting the player pool in half and and you know you think about people like uh, my brother who was drafted in the 40th round and other kids that I guys that I played with in the lower levels that made really good careers out of themselves that were drafted in the 30th 20th, 30th, 40th round, they, these guys aren't even going to get opportunities anymore. And if they do this, obviously the the the, the draft is going to be affected. You're not going to have 30 plus rounds of the draft anymore. So it's it's really uh, you you feel really bad for uh, not only the players because nine nine out of ten guys just want an opportunity. They just want to get into pro ball. They want to prove that they can play and they want to move up the ladder and hopefully get a chance at that dream of playing at the major leagues. And also the, these, these small towns all across the United States that, um, you know, that number one, make, make some money off of, uh, off of the team, but also are, uh, you know, ingrained into the community from the months of, of April until September, you know, it, that's gone. It's, it's, it's completely gone. So you feel really bad about this situation and, and uh, you know, you, there's, there's, you, you don't feel like there's much that you can do outside of disvoicing, you know, voicing your displeasure uh, like I am right now. But uh, at the same time, you really you really understand the hurt that these that these communities are going to go through um, when it's all said and done through this thing. Tom, I'd love to hear your thoughts when you heard that this is what MLB was going to do. And sadly, it's a done deal. It's already official that this is what's going to happen in 2021. Yeah, I, I uh, heard the how they had put this together and uh, the theory behind it. And I like Neil, you know, I, <laughs> I came through an era where 
they had actually two drafts. Um, they had a, a winter draft and a summer draft. And that's how I ended up being drafted uh, in the first round. And it gave, I, I actually saw these kids, Neil was, was talking about, I saw some kids come through that didn't even have a clue about thinking about playing in the major leagues, but all of a sudden they get drafted, picked up, and are working their way through the minor leagues. And I've got to tell you, there's a lot of opportunity out there for the kids like this, young men. And honestly, <laughs> we don't need fewer teams. We need more teams. We need, we need the inner city athletes to come around and play the minority kids, which we don't have enough of them playing right now. And there's a lot that goes into that. Good point. You know, uh, something else, and I had, uh, Tom, the opportunity to briefly, um, I don't know if it was last year or uh, two years ago. Uh, Neil, you might recall, um, we were sitting in the dugout at City Field, and we were talking analytics. And, you know, now that is the new language, um, and they call it data-driven baseball. And Neil, I'd love to hear your thoughts after watching this year's World Series, where it looks like the pitcher who was lights out and here it is was removed from the game. And I'm basically calling it an analytically driven plan in place by the Tampa Bay Rays. And I love to hear your thoughts, uh, Neil Walker and certainly Tom afterwards, but you know what, Neil, let's ask your dad first. Let's go with dad. You know, when you saw that game, um, uh, Tom, what were your thoughts? Well, I couldn't believe they were going to yank Snell out of the game. I mean, I was ridiculous the way he was throwing and, uh, he, he was in total, he was in charge of the game. I mean, he would, they could have left him out there for seven, eight, nine innings. And I, I feel confident that he could, he could get through that. And giving you an idea of how opposite I am to analytics and Cal Ripken senior was opposed to it. That game I was telling you about the 15 inning no hitter. I threw 193 pitches that night. <laughs> Well, excuse me, what was that? What was that? 193? 193, yeah. Oh, so, my God. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, and, and Rip, you know, I know that's crazy, isn't it? Um, and here, all I could see, because if you're throwing a no-hitter, you're down at the end of the dugout, nobody wants to talk to you except the trainer, and he wants to find out if you're still alive or you just are hanging out at the end of the dugout. What's going on? So all of a sudden, I see Ripken coming down to the end of the dugout and he goes, uh, Hey, walk, say, I got news for you. This is your last inning. You're done. I said, no, 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 Rip. I'm going to win this game. I'm going to absolutely win this game. And he kind of trotted off there a little short guy he was and he left the area. So with, <laughs> with two outs, uh, a guy named Mike Reinbach walks. And so the next guy up is Enos Cabell. And, uh, all of a sudden, uh, it's 3-2, so Reinbach's running, and Nina hits one off the center field wall. We score a run, and then um, I ended up winning the game. I went out and punched out one guy, pop up, ground ball. Ground ball was Lee Lacey, by the way, and uh, who I ended up playing with in winter ball one year. So, uh, But as it turned out, uh, I did win the game, and Ripken didn't get fired, so you know, analytics worked in my direction that night. And uh, it is, it's totally driven by analytics right now. And you've got a new group of men running the uh, general managerships of ball, ball clubs. Totally, the mentality is totally different now than it was even 15 years ago. So, yeah, yeah. I love, I, I love, I love to hear your thoughts, Neil. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting on a day to day basis, you, you, you don't really, you don't really understand, I guess, uh, totally why um, lineups look the way they do or moves uh, are made the way they are. But, um, you know, when you, when you start to, to have more conversations with people and start to understand that it's there, there's a few, there's a few more MIT and Harvard grads in uh, and it's, that's zero disrespect toward, toward anybody that has ever gone to those schools, but there's more and more of, of, of those, those types in, in major league locker rooms and, and in major league organizations than there are, you know, eight, 10 years ago. 
it was baseball people. It was people that had been around the game for a long, long time. Well, that's, that's turned a corner and that's turned a page. And I don't think it's bad. I think it's different. I think it's something that needs to be embraced, but at the same time, you, you can't fully grasp everything that you feel that you see uh, in statistics. You have to understand the player. You have to understand the mindset. You have to understand players' hearts. You have to understand that a guy can get through the, the you know, a pitcher can get through the order the third time, regardless of whether he's at 50 pitches or 95 pitches, whether he's been hit hard and given up one hit or uh, not hit hard and given up five runs. I mean, there's so, there's so many things that go into a singular game of baseball that, of course, over the over the long haul, over 162 games, you're going to have some data and statistics that pop out more than others. And I think it's very valuable to have that information in your back pocket. But when push comes to shove, and you and you have a guy like like Snell down in the in the World Series, and he nobody sniffed him the two times through the order, and you say, "Oh, let's get ahead of this thing before uh, you know it gets to the to to a, to a bad place." Well, you know, that's sometimes when analytics can, can kind of nip you in the butt. So um, I know as a player in, in his 30s right now that I should be somebody that's that's banging down the door to, 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 to get less analytic, analytics involved in baseball because as basically as soon as you hit 31, 32 in baseball right now, the analytics are telling you that you can't play the game anymore. And as many of us know, and, and, and many that have been in locker rooms and been around valuable veterans, whether they've been an everyday player or a bench player or a, a, a reliever, or, there's a lot of value to be in those guys that are getting, um, uh, you know, you hope that eventually it comes to a happy medium and, uh, and, and guys are, are, are getting their due, but, but the, the, the organizations and the, the anal analytics are taking both sides of it, uh, the, the extreme baseball side of it and the extreme data driven side of it and meshing it together and creating an environment of baseball that's maximizing the game. And interesting that you also mentioned uh, to have that balance. And I think that's something that just came out uh, maybe last month with Theo Epstein of the, uh, of the Chicago Cubs, which actually he has now uh, stepped away. Um, but he actually brought that out with the standpoint that, yes, he truly embraced it in, with the Red Sox and with the Chicago Cubs, but I think to hear an executive pretty much to say, you know what, maybe we have to really now get back to the table and say how we can balance out both analytics and, uh, you know, old school baseball, so to speak. Um, you know, Tom, um, talking about teammates, and we talked about that earlier, uh, there were two teammates of yours who uh, actually played the uh, the outfield or remarkable players in their own right. Interesting. One particular player goes off to uh, manage for two uh, Major League Baseball teams. And another one is, uh, and both of them were all-stars. But I thought it was interesting that one of the two that were your former teammates actually won the Roberto Clemente Award in 1982. So talk to me about uh, Felipe uh, Alou of the Alou brothers, who obviously are literally a, a, a legacy, um, a dynasty. Uh, Felipe's son is the manager of the New York Mets. So talk to him about Felipe Alou, what you learned from him, what you saw from afar, being teammates along with uh, Ken Singleton as well. Yeah, they were great guys. Uh, just, uh, well, obviously, Kenny, uh, what a, what a uh, pure talent. I mean, he, he had incredible talent. And uh, I think it was a lot of fun to watch him play. He was a good outfielder. He had a body that was beyond his years uh, in strength and in conditioning. And I asked him one day, I said, man, you, you're, you, you're hummed up there, man. You're looking good. Uh, how much weight do you leave here and go lift weights or something? He says, I never touch a weight. Uh, he was just blessed with that, you know, that body that the physique, yeah, the physique. Yeah, well, how'd you do that, man? I, I, it ain't working for me, but it is for you. So, uh, but then Felipe, uh, you know, it was really strange to, to watch him. I get, I don't know what year it was, but uh, he was playing. I was pitching against him. He hits a home run off of me. Guys wouldn't even talk to me for a week. You know, they. What do you mean you gave up a home run to Felipe? Uh, so 
but uh, incredible. He had, you know, one thing about him, he could, he could work with Latin players. He could work with the American players very well. And they all respected him so much that it was, he made it fun to play for him. He really did. You, you really, you really heard that so often about uh, Felipe Alou. And I think that's the one thing, the temperament that now you see with his son, uh, Luis Rojas, manager of the New York Mets. So, Neil, um, here it is. You played seven seasons with the Pirates, playing in a city. Surely your hometown was a, an absolute dream come true. Experiencing memorable moments, consecutive playoffs there in, uh, in Pittsburgh, walk-off homer, silver slugger in 2014. But guess what? On um, April 1st, 2011, you hit a grand slam on opening day at PNC Park, and you joined, guess who? Roberto Clemente as the only Pirates player to accomplish that unbelievable feat. But, Neil, there's something else. Here it is. And it happened in 2014, and it was on Roberto Clemente Day. So, Neil, for our Talking 21 listeners, please tell us what happened on Roberto Clemente Day in 2014. Yeah, you know, just just you just you bringing that up gives me goosebumps because, um, yeah, I, and I don't know the exact date. It was September of 2014. We were playing the Boston Red Sox. Uh, Clay Buckholz was pitching that night. We were working our way towards our second straight postseason appearance. Um, every year with the Pirates, uh, we would ob- obviously on Clemente Day, we as a team would go to a local elementary school or local inner city school with Vera, with Luis, with whoever was available, uh, with Junior, whoever was available. And we would, you know, basically tell, tell Roberto's story, but also, you know, basically do what what Roberto would do when he was playing here was just be uh, philanthropic and be part of the community and, 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 and help people understand that there's bigger things than sports. There's bigger things than baseball. There's, there's much more out there. And this, this particular year, 2014 uh, in September, I was sitting on 20 home runs. Um, it was on Roberto Clemente day. Vera and I think Vera and Luis were in the stands that day because they were in the dugout. I, I'm not sure if Junior was there or not, but I know that they were there because I, I, I would get the hair would raise up on my arms every time I would see them because of, of, of the circumstances. But um, they were in the dugout before the game and it didn't really strike me that it was Clemente Day and, and this and that. And, and, you know, every day that I would run out and, and for people that aren't familiar with PNC Park, in right field is a 21 foot wall. And, and obviously that's very symbolic, but it's also something that for seven years, when I would run out of the dugout from third base to second base, I would run directly toward that wall. So every time I would go out there, I would see the little emblem on the upper left-hand corner of the, of the 21 foot wall that came down in the right, about right center field. And uh, that particular night, um, and I, in my third or fourth at bat, I'm hitting left-handed, I hit a ball out there, and I'm not telling you, it went over the 21-foot wall by about that much. And I'm, walk, I'm, I'm, I'm trotting around the bases, and I hit second base, and all of a sudden I think, holy crap, that's my 21st home run on Roberto Clemente Day. And that was the most home runs that I'd hit in my career at that point. And, and, I, and I, get, I get back in the dugout, and dudes are looking at me like, hey, this is really weird. This is, this is something – this is cryptic, you know? And – you know, and I, I obviously believe in a higher power. I believe in a lot of things, but I believe that I was, was, was very blessed as a baseball player, but I was very blessed as, as somebody in the Pittsburgh uh, community and organization that, that understood uh, Roberto a little bit more than, than most of the players that have come through there simply because I knew his backstory. And obviously I never got to see him play because I was born in 85, but through my dad, let, let me add one more thing to the story. Um, <clears throat> we went to every home game, not all the road games. We did all the, all the road games, our home games. Anyway, uh, as fate was having, as Neil said, he was stuck on 20 for a while. So I went out and I had this set of glasses, number 21 glasses, uh, cocktail glasses. So I went out in the yard, 
cut a gardenia flower and put it in one of those glasses. And I came back in the house and told my wife, I said, something, something good's gonna happen tonight. And she thought I was nuts, uh, putting a gardenia in a number 21 glass. Well, guess what happened? He hits the home run on Roberto Clemente day. And you looked at your wife and said, I'm not nuts. No, I'm not <laughs> nuts, honey. I'm just telling you, I, this, I knew this was something was gonna happen. So what a night that was, I'll never forget yeah. that. Well, you know, Tom, um, in the States, it's been um, well-documented, and especially the listeners, the Talking 21 listeners, and those who are familiar with the uh, story uh, that you played, actually, in the Winter League in Puerto Rico in 1972. So here it is, you split time with the San Juan team and the Caguas team in 1972. So give me what was your overall first impressions of Roberto Clemente Walker. Well, yeah, that was kind of strange because he and I shared the same name. Uh, my name is Robert Thomas Walker and he is Roberto Clemente Walker. And um, I know that uh, he was he was bigger than life to me. You know, I, I got to play one year. He was playing his last year, obviously. And I was my first year and I, Going into that year, I played winter ball in 1971, and uh, that's obviously how I got to meet the man. I was single. I didn't have, you know, I wasn't going back to the States for Christmas, and as you know, uh, they have a week off between Christmas and New Year's. You just shut down baseball. Well, Nicaragua had the earthquake, and uh, he went into his philanthropic mode, and he was going to get some goods to uh, Nicaragua. Well, it worked, how it worked out was he had heard that the goods were not getting to the right people. And the, uh, the leadership in Nicaragua were kind of managing all the stuff coming in. Well, he wasn't real happy with that. And that's why he ended up uh, asking two brothers that owned that airplane. I don't know if people realize that, but the pilot and the co-pilot were brothers. And then uh, Roberto had a seat on the plane and his, I never forget it, his briefcase. And then he had enlisted two young Puerto Rican gentlemen, young men to help load and unload the plane. And uh, that was literally all the room that was left. And I asked him, I, you know, and, and uh, I, I told him, I said, Roberto, I wanna go with you. Uh, I don't have anything to do tonight. I wanna go to Nicaragua and uh, unload the plane. We'll be back, you know, da, 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 da. Well, he, uh, he was quick to say, no, uh, you're not going. We're to have no room on the plane for you. And uh, I, it, to, to kind of think about the moment, you know, they, they have daylight savings time in Puerto Rico, just like we do here in the States. So it was getting dark at five o'clock. And uh, I would say this was probably between 4 and 4.30 uh, when he and I had that conversation. And uh, he, uh, he said, gringo, party, truya, vamano. And I uh, went, oh, man, I don't, I don't really want to leave. So, but I went back, I got in my car, said goodbye to him. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just a normal day and around loading an airplane. It wasn't, there wasn't a fanfare. There wasn't a lot of people. It was just a normal work day loading that plane. And there was, really was no more room in that plane. And that plane should have never taken off. That plane had issues sitting on the ground. And he said, no, we're gonna take this plane. And uh, I'll never forget, I, I went back to uh, the apartment I was staying in on the, in the Condado section, which you know well where that's at. And uh, anyway, I went back, got parked the car. I was gonna get a shower and go get something to eat, whatever, go through you. And uh, <laughs> a young lady heard me coming down the hallway. She ran outside and she said, did you hear about Roberto? I said, no, I just left him an hour or so ago. And she said, uh, his plane crashed off the coast of Isla Verde. 
where the airport is. And I said, no, 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 that can't be right. And unfortunately it was right. And, uh, you know, it was uh, moments I'll never forget, uh, you know, for days people were lined up on the beach, the ocean, waiting for him to come out of the water, like he was gonna walk right out of the water and be normal Roberto, including Manny Sanguia. Uh, and of course we all know that that didn't happen. And uh, I remember several things going from that point, the uh, every car, every car, a taxi cab or car had a handkerchief attached to the, to the uh, radio antenna, every car. And, uh, you know, then we had uh, the bunch, uh, pirates fielded an airplane and flew it down to uh, San Juan and they had a little service, which uh, Steve Blass. Uh, he gave the eulogy. He did, yes. Yes, and yes. A little tiny church, but things I'll never forget. Obviously, I'll never forget them. But Yeah. Uh, you know, um, uh, Tom, um, I'd love because there's not too many people that can say it's one thing, Roberto, the baseball player, but Roberto, the manager. What can you tell me of your own observations of seeing, I know you said Roberto played part-time. He was a player uh, in the winter leagues, but also he managed. What can you tell me about Roberto manager? And secondly, here it is. We know what he did December 31st, a humanitarian mission. Did you see that in Roberto prior to the accident where Roberto would just, you know, let's just say little tidbits with uh, the players, uh, helping them that they were struggling uh, maybe interacting with the fans there, but did you see those attributes out of Roberto? Oh yeah, uh, I, I can remember uh, very clearly. Uh, one of my sons, Sean, his godparents are Puerto Ricans and uh, they still live on the island. And one thing uh, is, you know, talking to, uh, talking to my friend, he would tell me stories of Roberto as, you know, how effective he was with the government and with the people of Puerto Rico. But all he, you know, looking at gathering goods to send to Nicaragua, he got on the radio and asked the Puerto Rican people to please bring goods down to the Hiram B. Thorne Stadium. And, you know, it was like magic. <laughs> His leadership was so strong we had so much stuff down there. You, you can't imagine how much, how many people dropped off goods. It, it reminds me of what's going on in our country right now with COVID. People giving money or giving food and hoping it gets, uh, you know, to somebody that really needs it. But that's what he was all about. Here it is. You were mentioning some words in Spanish. First of all, you say gringo, right? So we all know what that means. But I'm listening. I'm listening to your accent there, Tom. So tell me right now. Tell our talking twenty-one listeners who are Spanish speaking and are familiar with some of the uh, words of our language. Was there anything, a phrase or word that you picked up there on the island during your time in the winter leagues? No, no. Well, the, the first, the first Spanish word uh, that you probably shouldn't be thrown around often is the word conio. Oh, no. Oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, for our, list, for, our, for our listeners, you know, let's, uh, the, you know, there's, there's swear, swear uh, words. So, you know, that, that's, that means damn, you know, I understand, yeah, uh, you know, you strike out, you're going to say that, you know? Yeah. You throw your back. So, hey, 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 Tom, when you throw a ball and they hit it out the ballpark, that might come out of your mouth, right? I it mean, come could on. Very you well, know? yeah, because, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> playing, playing in Puerto Rico, you learn a word or two, and playing in Montreal, you do the same thing. You learn a yeah. French word or two that might get you in trouble. <laughs> you so uh, I tried to stay away from that as much as possible. That was not one of the higher moments that I. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know, Neil, um, here it is, 2020. You know, sadly, so many lives lost. Um, I've known people that were affected with uh, COVID. Certainly, in the Walker household, I'm sure friends or maybe acquaintances or someone that you've known sadly have contracted um, this particular deadly virus. But 2020 in the shortened season, Neil, you had an opportunity on uh, September 9th, September 10th, which actually I believe uh, the Phillies played the following day. Their Roberto Clemente day was on September 10th. 
But here it is, uh, Neil. You had an opportunity to wear a particular number, and it was hanging in your locker. So please, Neil, for our Talking 21 listeners, tell me what that was like to look at that number that was hanging in your locker. Yeah, you know, like like you said, September 9th, September 10th was was my birthday. We're in Miami. We had a seven games in five day series because earlier on in the season the schedule was 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 kind of messed up uh, from COVID. And about a week before uh, Clemente Day, I remember asking one of the clubbies. I said, "Hey, are we are we doing Clemente Day this year?" Uh, you know, just uh, hoping that th- nothing had changed. And they said, "Yeah, we're going to do it in." Uh, we're not going to do it home. We're going to do it in Miami. We have an off day the day the, the day that we're that everybody's doing it, but we're going to do it the following day on Friday, I believe it was. And I said, well, what are we what are we allowed to do? Uh, you know, because in the past you could wear an armband uh, that says 21. You could, you know, you could wear something to, to honor uh, the number or or Roberto. And they said, actually, this year, if you'd like to wear the number 21 on your back, uh, you can do so. And I said, uh, are you kidding me? Yeah, absolutely. I want to do that. Whatever I can do to do it, please let's do it. And, uh, I get to the, I get to the ballpark on September 9th and, uh, sitting in my locker there is, is the number 21. And I was like, this is, I mean, this is incredible. I don't, I can't think of a better way to, to honor this man. And, and, and you know what, on that same note, Danny, you wouldn't believe and I know you've had this, I've had this conversation with you and you've had this conversation on this podcast and um, the amount of people and not just the amount of ball players and not just the Latin players that really would love to see the number 21 uh, retired league wide is incredible. And, and to be honest with you, not a lot of guys in my locker room with the Phillies knew that you could wear 21 on your back that day and a lot of them were upset because they said, whoa, hold on. How did you, how did you do this? And I said, well, uh, about three or four days ago, I let them know I wanted to do something for the day. And they said, you could wear the, the league said you could wear the Jersey on that day. And they were, they were running to the, to the clubhouse guy going, Hey, can I get a 21 Jersey? Can I get, and they, it was too late to do that for that particular night. Um, but I, I hope this is a trend in the right direction because uh, obviously you know how I feel and, and everybody that that's involved with, with, with baseball, knows how I feel and the Latin ball players feel, but it's not just that it's, it, it's everybody. It's it, people are, are, are finally understanding the impact that this man had on the game, not just the game of baseball, but the humanitarian side, the, philo- the philanthropic side. And I think it's just a matter of time. And I hope it's this year. And if it's not this year, I hope it's the following year. I hope that finally the number 21 will be completely retired, but you know, I, I guess time will tell. And, and 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 if if I may ask Tom, when you knew that, and I'm sure when Neil called you or texted you and said, "Dad, I'm wearing number 21," what are your thoughts when uh, Neil communicated that with you? Well, I, you know, you don't know what's going to happen after that. You get the man's jersey on you, and and uh, anything's possible. Um, but I was thrilled, absolutely thrilled. You know, the one thing about the current. Uh, organization here, our Pirate Alumni Organization, which you're familiar with, uh, there's a big push uh, for the number 21 to be retired, not only with the Pirates, that is a retired number, but also there's going to be a major push and it's going to start here. Uh, Steve Blass is involved with it. I'm involved with it. I I will do all I can to help get that number retired, but uh, I'd love to see it. Uh, I think the Certainly the Latin players, uh, he is so, uh, such a, a form of leadership for them. I uh, did a speaking engagement uh, down in, in Miami. It's been four or five years ago. And, you know, uh, many great players, Latin players came down there to do some clinics in honor of Roberto. And uh, I, I did get, they asked me to tell the story of the last moment in time. Uh, where a baseball player, major league player, had contact with Roberto. And I told that story. And honestly, um, I'll tell you what, there were a lot of (laughs) major league baseball players with tears in their eyes at that point, including this old boy. So, uh, you know, for Neil on that 
given day to be able to wear Roberto's number is just an honor. I mean, it's an honor. It really is. So, you, you know, um, something that Neil mentioned, er, mentioned earlier, uh, Tom, and I'd like to hear your thoughts as well. And we could kind of just go back and forth. Here it is. Both of you had the opportunity to become very, very, very close to the Clemente family. Sadly, last November 2019, we lost, and I always call her Doña Vera Clemente. I always call her Doña. And um, here it is. I got a chance to know her. I had a, an, an amazing relationship for 17 years. But I'd like to know, Tom, when you shared that story with her and when Neil had time to speak with both Luis, Roberto Jr., Enrique, and Mrs. Clemente, you know, Tom, when she heard that come directly from you, what talk about that relationship when maybe it was just you and Mrs. Clemente, you and Mrs. Vera Clemente together alone in the dugout or in the stands? I'd love to hear, um, you know, any of your recollections of when you got an opportunity well, to sit down with her. Sure. I, you know, I went uh, back off the podium, sat down and, you know, <laughs> I uh, was kind of at an angle where I could see Luis, uh, junior. And I can't remember if the our other son was there or not. I don't think so, but I did see Vera and, uh, uh, she's, she raised her finger up what her left first finger and, and, uh, raised it up. And I went, well, so after the evening was over, I went over to Carol and I went over to see her and say hello to her. And, uh, she she just kind of like grabbed me, just put her arms around me and said, uh, I feel so fortunate that you were there with Roberto. And I'm thinking, man, this is really crazy. Wow, wow. You know, I, was, I was 23 years old and uh, going through an experience like this and having someone like Vera from Carolina, Puerto Rico. Yeah. Uh, you, I like the way you said that, um, Carolina. I like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I, I stayed in touch. I, I see uh, every chance I get, I see Junior uh, around town. He's the most obvious uh, Clemente here. And uh, I've, I've chatted with him a, a number of times. So, yeah, it, uh, it was a special moment for Mrs. Clemente. Sure, sure. And you know, Neil, Neil, the one tribute that I've always loved hearing from you before we met, uh, our relationship now, Neil, is going into our ninth year that we've known each other. But here it is that every time when you would stand at second base um, as a member of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and you would have a moment of silence, I believe, and pretty much in essence saying, you know, thank you, Roberto, that my dad, I know we lost you, but that my father wasn't on that plane because I wouldn't exist. I would have never known. I would have never had the opportunity to play. Uh, but you know, I I do owe you my life, and that's something you have said often, Neil. Yeah, and 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 the one thing that that uh, you know always strikes me is that with as a Pittsburgh Pirate, when we would have the national anthem before the game, the the you know you you a lot of times you would be facing center field and kind of left center field with the, where the flag would, would be standing. But at the same time, that, that, that number, tw that, that 21 foot number 20, number 21 and emblem wall is, is right there in your face. So, uh, you know, I, I would always be kind of snapped back uh, to reality and, and to the understanding that I, I, I wouldn't exist were, <laughs> were it not for, for, for Roberto Clemente and, 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 you know, had he said, you know what, boys, you, you know, any anybody that's 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 helping load this plane, jump on a box on here. We're we're gonna take a couple hour trip to Nicaragua. We're gonna drop this stuff off and come back, and and, and all will be all will be well. And and fortunately for myself and and for a lot of a lot of people involved and in, uh, involved in that particular moment in time, that wasn't the case. And um, unfortunately for for him and and the several people on that plane, they lost their lives that day. But you know, I, I always, I always really enjoyed uh, Clemente Day every year you, when you knew that that Vera and the boys were, were coming to town and 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 you were going to be doing something to to impact the community, and you would see them in the dugout, and and I would always, uh, you know, and, and and I was always tried to be respectful of of 
of them and, and, and how many different directions they got pulled when they were uh, in the Pirates uh, uh, community and presence per se. But I would always try to at least uh, reach out to Vera when she was in, in the dugout and, and give her a hug and just say thank you. And I, I don't know if she understood half of what I was uh, what I meant by saying thank you, but, um, you know, obviously I do. And, and any chance I got to tell her thank you, I tried to take advantage of that. And, guys, before we wrap up for our Talking 21 listeners, because this truly was a, an amazing conversation, uh, Neil, I'm going to start with you. Neil, you're sitting down with the commissioner of Major League Baseball. In a few words, besides the obvious what are you saying to him about what we said earlier about retiring Clemente's number? A few words, Neil. You know, it's it's a no-brainer. It's there are very there are very few players that universally from the 20s, 30s, whatever, that deserve to be honored in a certain way. And and, and obviously Jackie Robinson is one of them, and rightfully so. And I think I think Roberto Clemente is 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 right there along uh, along with that, and I I just I hope that uh, cooler heads will prevail per se. You know I, I know that, that it's not for any lack of 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 trying uh, per se, but I, I just I hope that he'll come around and say you know what this is a man that we need to honor and not down the road. This is well overdue. This needs to happen now and. Anybody that's wearing 21, sorry, but this 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 is this is done. And um, you know, I I just I don't know. That's obviously not very few words, Danny. I'm sorry, but I know I I hope that 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 this will happen sooner rather than later, and I think that it will. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, so Tom, uh, we heard from your son with regards to if he had a few moments with the commissioner of Major League Baseball. I love to hear your thoughts on why Roberto Clemente's number should be retired? Well, uh, I, I think in, of all things, Roberto brings leadership to the Latin players and to the American players that we haven't seen before. If you ask a fellow like Brooks Robinson, uh, who, who's the greatest player you ever seen? He would tell you Roberto Clemente. And they played in at least two, all, two World Series uh, uh, games that I remember, but there was so much, uh, Roberto brought so much more than baseball to the game of baseball. He brought uh, a form of leadership that we've never seen before. He brought attitude from all the players that, you know, it's all about giving back. It's all about helping someone else that has a greater need than you. And I know there's some wonderful statements out there that he made that, uh, uh, I, as Neil could tell you, we have that on the wall in our basement at home. And every time I go down there, I get to look and read it. But uh, there's no question in my mind that if put together properly uh, in the senior group of, of gentlemen and former baseball players, we can get this done. We, we can get this done and just to open ears people that want to listen for all the right reasons, we can get Roberto, his number retired as one of the greatest baseball players that ever lived with many more directions than just being able to play baseball. That's what I would tell him. And Neil and Tom Walker, I can't thank you guys enough. This truly was uh, an amazing time with you on the Talking 21 podcast and on behalf of the entire crew. I can't thank you guys enough. I know we had a little slight difficulty there, uh, but Neil, I think for the most part, we got some amazing stories. And Tom, uh, I'm sure we're going to have uh, a lot more conversations uh, when I can't catch up with your son. So um, just thanks so much, guys. Well, come to Pittsburgh. I, 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 uh, I'll be at the ballpark once they let us go back in there. So. Oh well, I, I, I come at least. I'll, I come at least uh, twice a year to PNC Park. It's an amazing ballpark. It really is my favorite ballpark. And uh, certainly uh, look forward to uh, sitting there uh, with you along with your wife. And, uh, you know, it's just be have a good time. You betcha.
Amen, Tom Walker. Amen. And again, I can't thank you guys enough on behalf of the Talking 21 crew. Um, thanks for being, thanks for joining us. You betcha. Got it, Danny. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Tom and Neil Walker. This was a lot of fun, and I'm certain our listeners will enjoy this latest episode. Hearing some amazing stories from two generations of baseball puts everything into perspective on where America's pastime is today. But most importantly, to see Clemente's impact and relevance in not only today's players, but certainly in the Walker's household as well. Wearing the number 21 was quite an honor for Neil, the number once worn by his father's manager in the Puerto Rican Winter League, and of course, his friend. We hope to one day see his iconic number finally retired throughout the entire league. Until our next episode, many thanks for listening, and be sure to follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at Talking21Podcast for all the latest information about our episode drops. And if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And a special thank you to our executive producer, Ras Guevara, and our co-producer, Senor Basil. Tune in next time for our continued conversation about the great one. And as always, this is your host, Danny Torres. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at DannyT21.